This is a podcast from HSBC Global Research, available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. However you're listening, analystifications, disclosures and disclaimers must be viewed on the link attached to your media player. Hello and welcome to Under the Banyan Tree, where we put Asian markets and economics in context. I'm Fred Newman, Head of Asian Economics Research at HSBC. Today we continue our special series on ASEAN with a focus on Vietnam, Malaysia and Singapore. Joining me in the studio is Yun Liu, one of our Hong Kong-based ASEAN economists. We're going to be discussing what makes these economies tick from the rising middle class to global supply chains and tourism, even the pulling power of Taylor Swift. Much to discuss, so let's get the conversation started under the Banyan Tree. Let's start with some facts and figures to help put these economies in context. Uh, when you think about Vietnam, it produces about half of all Samsung smartphones manufactured globally, clearly a very large amount. In fact, these exports of Samsung smartphones account for about 13% of Vietnam's GDP. Meanwhile, when you look at other semiconductors, um, a fifth of world processor chips are actually made in Malaysia and Singapore. That's a big chunk of these processor chips made in these two economies. Singapore's Changi Airport was ranked as the world's fifth busiest airport last year in 2023. And the one-hour flight between Singapore and the Malaysian capital Kuala Lumpur is officially the world's busiest international route. So we're joined uh, today by Yuan Liu, who is our economist for Vietnam, Malaysia and Singapore. And uh, welcome to the podcast, Yuan. Thank you, Fred. Um, now, these three economies are interesting because one thing that they have in common is that they're big beneficiaries of the supply chain diversification that we're seeing, enormous amounts of foreign investment pouring in. And maybe we should start with Vietnam, which has been sort of the darling, if you will, of, of the foreign investment community for quite some time now, attracting uh, investment in its plants and factories. Um, could, could you kind of detail where we are in terms of uh, the electronics, particularly uh, electronic sector in Vietnam? How important is Vietnam in, in global supply chain terms? Uh, is, is it become a big player nowadays when it comes to, to electronic supply chains? Oh, definitely it is. I mean, especially in the consumer electronic space, Vietnam has an edge over others. Um, and I mean, a lot of people thought about it. Oh, the whole story started um, as recent as the U.S.-China trade tensions, but it's actually not. It started way earlier than that, as early as 2008, when some Korean companies um, have started to move their uh, value chain to Vietnam. And uh, since the U.S.-China trade tensions, what we have seen is the trend has been accelerated, and uh, it really has attracted a lot of the big tech giants from different countries, from different economies uh, to uh, Vietnam. Um, one interesting thing about Vietnam is that if we look at its export composition, 20 years ago, the largest basket of its exports were just textile and foodwares. But now, just within 20 years' time, consumer electronics, which was only 5% of exports 20 years ago, now the ratio is as high as 35%. So this is really thanks to this consistent FDI inflows from the tech giants. So, so you have uh, inflows in consumer electronics. Uh, they're assembling f smartphones, for example, tablets, smartwatches, I believe. 
Um, is there also kind of higher value added um, investment coming through? I'm thinking, thinking about semiconductors, for example. Correct. Um, so Vietnam's ambition does not stop there. Um, Vietnam really has this ambition of climbing up the value chain. Uh, well, for now, it's you know manufacturing is still relatively labor uh, intensive. But what we have seen is some of the semiconductor investment also have been flowing to Vietnam in recent years. And one interesting fact here, if we look at global pro processor chips here. Vietnam's uh, share doubled in just one year's time to 7.5%. It's quite impressive. And, so, Well, you're talking about ambition, for example. Um, we also read a lot about Vietnam does, even wants to uh, produce electric vehicles at some point, uh, join that, that uh, you know, the boom that China has experienced. Is, is that uh, is it going to be a major player anytime soon in terms of exporting electric vehicles, do you think? Well, I mean, for now, I think it's still very much at the nascent stage, um, but it's always, always good to diversify your sector. Um, especially from electronic to probably something else. Now, um, we talk a lot about uh, the electronic sector and foreign direct investment in Vietnam, and I think that story is very well known, generally speaking, although obviously the nuances that, that you put around this help. Um, but, but let's talk about Vietnam as an economy in its own right. Uh, uh, paint us a picture. How, how many people are in Vietnam? Uh, wh- how, how, are, how important is the domestic market? Are foreign investors also going to Vietnam because you have a burgeoning middle class, for example? That's really the trend that we've been seeing, especially in the past five years. I mean, Vietnam has a large population, close to 100 million. And, you know, with the rise of middle class and this increasing urbanization, there are a lot of opportunities in the domestic market, as as you mentioned. And I think one interesting thing is, especially if we look at the FDI that has been flowing to Vietnam, I mean, for now, it's still very much concentrated in manufacturing. But incrementally, we have seen this rise in... Um, well, from foreign investors who are interested in the domestic market, you know, we're talking about retail uh, giants here from Japan, food and beverage companies here. So I think that's really the trend that we've been seeing. Um, Vietnam has um, emerged from this emerging hub for manufacturing, but increasingly um, there has been a lot of attention on its own domestic market, on its own potential here. That That's really indicative of, of, of how far Vietnam has come. I remember... Um, traveling to Vietnam in the mid-1990s, and there were barely any cars on the street, and and let alone motorcycles. People were walking. Um, But today, you walk through Ho Chi Minh City, and uh, you can barely cross the street. It's so jam-packed with cars. So it it really shows that enormous uh, development there. Um, let us let us maybe shift to Malaysia, um, and there are some parallels here, right? Malaysia has actually kind of bounced back in recent years as a manufacturing hub. Uh, tell us about some of the key sectors that that Malaysia is involved in. Yeah, so Malaysia is actually in a in very interesting case here. It's uh, If we look at its export base, it's very much well diversified. It's not only a commodity exporter, if we think about oil, LNG, you know, to a lesser extent, palm oil, but also it has quite a sizable uh, tech manufacturing sector. I think this is um, not really a widely known story compared to, you know, its other regional peers here. Um, but if we look at the uh, the particular products that Malaysia has been producing, well, 
for now, it's still relatively labor intensive, but it actually produces a large part of uh, the world's um, automotive chips. Um, and um, especially during COVID, if we uh, recall back, there was quite a, a period of uh, chip shortage, specifically for automotive chips. And that was the time when we saw Malaysia's uh, exports just boom by like 30% electronics exports. And a lot of this, I think, uh, semiconductors, as you say, automotive, um, but it's not so much that they produce the wafers um, that's produced elsewhere, but Malaysia is really specializing in um, testing and packaging, for example, which actually is a quite important part of the, the, the chip supply chain. That's correct. Yeah. So it's still, I mean, Malaysia and Singapore are the only two Aussie countries here with foundries. But if we look at Malaysia's tech manufacturing, it's still relatively a lower value end here. It pro its chips is not as high end as other uh, countries. But I think um, in terms of the world share, Malaysia really has gained substantial market share in the past 10 to 15 years. So an electronics uh, exporter here, part of these these shifting supply chains in Asia, particularly with semiconductors. But there's obviously much more to the Malaysian economy with uh, commodities, you mentioned that. But then there's tourism. Um, not many people think of Malaysia as being a top tourist destination, but that's actually wrong. Um, t tell us about the importance of tourism in, in Malaysia. Yeah, I think Malaysia is quite an underrated uh, country when it comes to tourism in ASEAN. Um, I mean, it have, really has a wild diversity of tourism resources, if you think about, you know, an island experience, go to Langkawi, if you think about, you know, KL, it's very much a city experience, um, Penang. So it um, really has been stepping up its efforts in marketing itself um, as a, a popular tourism destination. No, and and um, of course, apart from the delicious food in Malaysia as well, <laughs> one of my favorites being uh, Nasi lamak, the, the fried rice, uh, fried chicken actually with with rice. Um, but uh, is is there a prospect for this year of actually um, attracting more tourists? Uh, there's some talk I think about visa waivers, for example, Chinese tourists. Uh, would that make a big difference? And, and how how would you see that play out? Uh, yes, I do think there is quite um, an upside um, risk to tourism in uh, for Malaysia in 2024 if we think about the visa-free schemes here. Uh, Malaysia joined uh, Thailand actually last year uh, to be the second uh, ASEAN country to announce that visa waiver for Chinese tourists. And Singapore also announced a similar scheme, but we're still waiting for uh, exact timing, uh, the details to be announced. But uh, if we think about it, there's um, traditional, very much popular regional route of uh, Thailand, Malaysia, and, and, and Singapore, I think it really increases this attractiveness of, uh, of uh, for a lot of the Chinese tourists to do a, a regional tour, tour um, for um, a, a very short period of time. Um, so yeah, I mean, being the, I know there has been uh, some disappointment um, when it comes to the return of Chinese tourists, but I, I think the visa waiver might be one of the boosts that we're going to see for 2024. Well, there you have it. I mean, both Vietnam and Malaysia, key, key cogs in that regional electronic supply chains, um, both actually also quite uh, the tourism industry quite important as well. 
Um, and both are seeing continued foreign investment coming in, expanding market share. And it's probably one of the reasons why we see growth accelerating despite these challenging global headwinds that are building up. Um, I think this is a great time to take a quick break. And when we come back, we wanna, I want to ask you a bit more about Singapore because that's sort of the, the third country under your coverage. And, and, and there are some parallels here, but also there's some unique traits for Singapore. So we want to talk about that when we come back. So, Yun, um, we were just talked about Vietnam and we talked about Malaysia. Uh, let's turn to Singapore. And um, Singapore also has had very strong, resilient performance through the pandemic. Um, part of this is still manufacturing-based, interestingly. So despite being a small city-state um, that is largely, we think of it as services-led, there's still an important manufacturing component. Uh, can, can you talk to us about that and what are some of the leading industries and how well are they doing? Are they losing jobs or are they actually still um, holding their own? Yeah, so if we look at the uh, manufacturing share um, in GDP, uh, it's still as high as 20% for Singapore. Um, I mean, it's especially when we when we think about the electronic sector here is definitely the largest manufacturing segment but is actually quite well diversified if we think about um, pharmaceuticals very capital intensive but very much high-end in terms of value um, it also has a, a, a petrochemical production um, as well as high-end uh, aerospace uh, engineering parts so it's quite a well diversified picture it's not only the story of uh, electronics now over the years uh, we've talked a lot about the potential for integration between Singapore and sort of the hinterland, if you will, the border region with Malaysia, for example, where, uh, you know, you've seen the integration of manufacturing production, for example. How much of that has really happened? Johor, for example, southern Malaysia is one of these key areas. So, so one way to think about this um, is sort of Hong Kong and Shenzhen across the border, right, where Hong Kong, you know, had the capital, had some of the engineering skills, and over the years we built factories in Shenzhen. Is, is, do you have a similar relationship to some extent between Singapore and southern Malaysia, or is, is that not quite as... I, as I think it's tight? quite as similar to Hong Kong and, and Shenzhen. I mean, this is really a scheme that has been pushing um, by both Malaysia and Singapore. Both authorities have set up a special economic zone um, in JB and really trying to drive that integration. And I think one of the key issues that our two countries want to solve is this uh, traffic congestion between the two. Now you mentioned JB. I think you mentioned Johor Bahru, Johor right? Bahru, that's, yes. uh, that's the southern part of the Malaysian Peninsula, of course, that lies closer to right to, to, to Singapore. To Singapore. Um, so, so manufacturing is still a surprising bright spot for an economy of of Singapore's, you know level of development. Um, but then, of course, services all key in Singapore and. Um, yeah, they come off the out of pandemic really strong. Financial services are expanding. Uh, so is tourism, still an important sector. Um, there, there is there is also this this idea that that the term you coined, which is the concert uh, economy. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I mean we're seeing quite a lot of lineup of concerts this year. Um, uh, we've had um, Coldplay this year at the end of January, and then uh, Taylor Swift is also going to come um, in March. So I think it really this year, after the the COVID um, ended, there has been this revenge concert um, uh, uh, watching uh, has still been pretty much ongoing. 
How, how does that help the economy, though? Uh, you, you know, Taylor Swift coming into town, <laughs> um, a lot of T-shirts being sold, or, or how, how did you see that uh, somehow uh, in, in terms of the impact on, on the economy? Well, so it definitely helps with its retail sales. And then what we heard on the ground is that there, because it's so popular, a lot of people couldn't really get tickets. What uh, some banks did um, on the ground was um, they offered credit cards. Um, if you if you apply for a credit card, then you are entitled to an early access to to buy um, to get a ticket from for Taylor Swift concert um, and it was quite popular um, on the ground so, so so we obviously see booming manufacturing we see financial services doing well we get the concert economy now thrown in for good measure um, but Singapore is a limited geographic place. Uh, it's still a fairly small economy. Does all that investment, that increase in demand, ultimately stretch the resources? Uh, for example, I'm thinking about housing. Uh, does that push up house prices? Is there an inflation problem as a result of this because of that that strong growth? Yeah, correct. So what we've been seeing is this market, property market really has been booming and there was really reflects a mismatch between uh, demand and supply. Well, the good news is that we're starting to see some signs of a cooling property market, but we still probably uh, uh, still have a long uh, way to go. And especially if we look at the inflation data here, um, this inflation is definitely a trend in Singapore, but it seems like that core inflation is so sticky. That last mile of disinflation is just very hard to achieve. We still have a long way to go. Well, th- th- thanks, Yun. Uh, I think you really shared light on th- three key economies uh, in, in Southeast Asia. And I think they uh, really helped to illustrate why we're so optimistic on that region. Despite the negative global headlines about the global economy, there are really these micro foundations that you see in Vietnam, Malaysia, and, and Singapore coming through. So thank you for joining us and highlighting this. Um, I should also say, when I think about the concert economy, of course, um, we have a big event coming up in Hong Kong, actually, which is the HSBC Global Investment Summit in early April. Uh, I'm not sure it will have the same effect on the local economy, but certainly people are getting very excited about that because we'll have key speakers from around the world. And of course, uh, dear audience, stay tuned for more details on that. Um, but you and um, Harold is not here. So in, in his absence, would you do the honor about some of the other announcements that we usually give on this podcast? Sure. Don't forget to listen to the Macro Brief, um, our other weekly podcast from HSBC Global Research, bringing you the big picture on the global economy every Friday. That's right. So there you have it. Uh, more than one podcast to listen to at HSBC. But of course, uh, we do hope you tune back into the Banyan Tree next week. And once again, thank you, Yoon, for joining us. And thank you, uh, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you.